Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Oshart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. A couple of things here. I'm going to just before we get started, financial disclosures. Both Jennifer and I do receive a small honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this podcast episode. And we have no non-financial disclosures. Ah, okay. All right. I would like to heartily welcome everyone here to this live SpeechLink podcast. And of course, it's sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. And you are welcome to participate as we go along. Feel free to type your question or comment into the chat. And toward the end of time, or if it's more appropriate during, we'll just kind of figure that out as we go along. We'll read it and our guest, Jennifer, will respond. I'm Shar Beauchart, your speech-language pathologist host. And our goal here is to connect or link with outstanding professionals in our field. And we're going to dig in and then pull out those gems, those practical gems, so that we can improve what we do to help those that we work with improve what they do. And to help us do that today, we have our guest, Jennifer Gray, MS, CCC, SLP. She earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in speech-language pathology from Northern Arizona University, then studied two years post-grad at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She has taught speech and fluency at the undergrad level and speaks at local, state, and national conventions. In addition, she's written a variety of articles about speech production. She has over 20 years, which she doesn't look like it, 20 years of experience (laughs) working in universities and public schools and private practice and early intervention settings, treating speech, language, and feeding delays and disorders. Now, in the last 12 years, she has specialized primarily in communication and feeding for those with intellectual disabilities and motor speech disorders, particularly those with Down syndrome. She is the owner of Gray's Peak Speech Services in the Denver area, where she and her team of SLPs specialize in childhood communication, speech, motor planning, and feeding disorders. She trains families and caretakers and therapists and educators. Her passion is to continue to seek and innovate evidence-based practices to ensure functional outcomes for educational, social, and independent living success. Those are very good goals, Jennifer. Welcome to the speech link, Jennifer. Thank you. That seems to get longer every time. And I'm like, wow, I do a lot. Doesn't always feel like it, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, in 20 years, you can get a lot done. Yes, you can. (laughs) 
Yeah, it is amazing. It is amazing. Well, I'm just so excited that you're here and you are talking with us today about individuals, basically toddlers to adults with Down syndrome. And you're going to talk with us about speech clarity and probably a few other things too. Now, I happen to really enjoy, I love this topic. I really enjoy working with individuals with Down syndrome. And I can't wait to hear and to learn from you. And uh, you know, you and I have talked a couple of times, and this seems like a favorite topic of yours. But just briefly, just to get us started, how did this come about in your life? Yeah, I think we kind of all have a similar story where we we started somewhere that we didn't end up, or it kind of comes full circle. And so it it's kind of done that for me, where I really fell in love with fluency. And that was what prompted me to go to graduate school. And I had every intention of staying there. But life has, you know, its own little things that it throws at you. And so I was able to kind of go and needed to get a job for the first time after being in college for, you know, seven and a half years, almost eight years. And as a part of that, I ended up having several different jobs, working in the schools, working in very poor areas, kind of on the border, on the Indian reservations. And so I kind of had enough of that frustration with not necessarily the, the people I was working with, but how well I could do my job. And so from there, I ended up doing some work with oral motor and feeding, having no idea and no training background at all about what that was like. But I did have that motor speech piece where I never really fell in love with language other than literacy. So I guess I sort of did. I was really intrigued by how children learn to read and how that helped speech. But really, I was kind of a speechy, but not an artic speechy. So I didn't know that at the time. But when I found feeding and oral motor at the time, this is back when it just started to be a not good thing in our field. But not knowing that, I kind of learned really quickly what it was (laughs) and what the research was doing with it at that time. And then the feeding piece and how it all kind of rolled into speech. So it was really about two and a half years where I probably learned more in that two and a half years than I have since. And what that did was it drew a certain population. And that population just happened to be people with cerebral palsy, autism, Down syndrome. And at the time, it was sort of at the beginning of childhood apraxia of speech, which I had learned nothing about. And so I was really kind of having fun, but also scared at the same time, because I didn't learn a lot of this. And I had to learn it with families and with clients. And I just happened to have some good mentors at the time. And then I kind of went my own way. And when I did that, I started an early intervention, but still had enough of that new knowledge plus my knowledge of research. And so quickly, I kind of ended up in private practice doing early intervention in Colorado. And then over time, started to draw families with Down syndrome. And so I kind of stayed there. And I ended up not picking it necessarily. It almost picked me. But I was doing something right. Parents were coming to me saying, oh, my gosh, why didn't I know this? I wish I could have done this earlier, you know, and then I was hearing all these stories about what they didn't have. And this is at all ages, but mostly the little ones. And I slowly learned that what I was doing was not what other people were doing at all. We were so language heavy in our field at that time that we really focused on, 
you know, making the environment better and scaffolding and providing rich language environments, which is wonderful, but it didn't help our kids with motor speech disorders. And that's what I was seeing from very young ages from the oral motor feeding side. And so kind of word of mouth got out there that I was doing some of this stuff with children with Down syndrome. And then that just took me to now where that's all I do. And because not only was no one else doing what I was doing, there was nothing to read. There was nothing to find. There was nothing to point me in the direction I should go. And so I had to figure it out. And obviously, when that happens, you end up learning and liking the learning that you're doing because you're not being told to do it. At least my personality (laughs) worked that way. Yeah. And so I had this freedom in in a way because I didn't have a boss to try. Like, gosh, I read this. I'm going to try that. I read this. I'm going to try that. And just over the years, I was able to keep the things that worked and get rid of the things that didn't. (laughs) So that's kind of the Mm -hmm. watered down Mm -hmm. version of how Mm -hmm. I got here. Mm -hmm. Was this around the mid 2000s, like 2005, 2006, 2007? Exactly. Yes. Around 2007. That was the big piece of it there. And then I came out of it in 2008 and was still in it, but not... Not the level that you were probably still in it or that Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson was in it and Diane Barr and all these people that were, you know, really, Pam. you guys, yeah. Pam, yep, you guys were all in that same group and I was kind of the little one coming yeah. up underneath you. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that's good. So we all know how, you know, that was so stressful, but there were some good things and now we're kind of seeing that now, which is, it's getting fun again. <laughs> Good, good. Well, and the bottom line is that we as therapists need to focus on who we're working with and doing the best therapy instruction that we can to help them. That's the whole enchilada. That's what we need to do. So I'm so anxious to hear what you do. So we're, we're going to get into that. But I know that you talk about speech clarity. And I know the obvious answer to this, but I'm thinking there's probably some responses there that are not necessarily obvious. So why is speech clarity important, especially for the Down syndrome population? You know, and I have to ask myself this question probably once a year, because sometimes I can get off track and I chase other things because there's a lot of other important things. But what I always come back to is no one else was doing this. And so I was seeing children from three years old, where they're not supposed to have a lot of clarity, but maybe they weren't talking at all, really, and they could be. Mm -hmm. And then I was seeing my eight-year-olds, for some reason, that was a magic number. And then I would see 12-year-olds and then 16-year-olds, and I was like, oh my goodness, it never gets better. And this is something that parents complain about the whole time. Every therapist they go to, they want clearer speech, but rarely do we do that, right? Because we have that rich language background or we're working in the schools and we have all those language goals and we forget, just like you said, to look at how that person learns, figuring out what they might need to get better language skills and then to be able to tell us what they know. So the speech clarity for me, the simplest answer is, can they tell me what they know and I understand it? And oftentimes that's the crux of the problem. From two years old to 30 years old, parents ask for the same thing. And we just aren't working on it. And we're, we're, I think we're trying to get that out more and more now. And we're starting to see some more of that. And really, apraxia kind of changed that. It really kind of forced us back 
to the original where we started, which was speech, right? And so that is changing, but that also threw another wrench in there. How do we do both? How do we work on this motor planning thing that's so wacky and there's no rules and we like rules? Plus all the other speech stuff that we were seeing with these kids, because they can have everything at the same time. We can have our tick problems, phonology problems, motor planning problems, oral motor issues, voice, resonant, fluency. So as we kind of follow this snowball gets so big, but we're really not working on the snowball at all. We're kind of going around it. And so I've decided through my writing and speaking that that's where I'm going to stay. Not only do I love it, and I'm always tempted to go (laughs) other directions, and I do, but what is it about this population that this remains so hard? And Mm -hmm. what can we do at certain ages or just in general? How do we get better? Because we are not viewed well (laughs) in this population for good measure. And Eve, it's kind of affecting insurance now, just as a quick side, but it'll kind of come back is... I'm getting denials from insurances sometimes because this child is 16 and you've seen them or they've had speech therapy since they were two. And now you want two or three sessions a week. No, we don't want to give you that. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can repeal it and we can get some of that done, but we haven't done a good job. And so what I've tried to do more recently is to (laughs) tell other therapists these things how can we look at this? And you can keep your goals too, because the last thing we know that never works is, especially in the schools, is to give that therapist more things to work on and more ways that that's supposed to be incorporated. And that group specifically is so overwhelmed. So that's kind of my new goal for trying to reach out to SLPs and not just families, kind of where I started. And that was in your private practice. Yes. So this is through yeah. early intervention yeah. and then my private practice is the, the right. speaking side. So you've had good success through the years with those early intervention kids and the preschoolers and early elementary? Yes. Yeah. Good. Good, good, good. That's very exciting. <laughs> That's very Just exciting. getting them ready to do what we need them to do and to right. use their voices. Um, yeah. And that's, okay. a big, that's a big piece. We're going to take this step by step. Are there barriers to, I mean, obviously there's some level of barriers you were, you were talking about. We, you know, we just don't get in there and and remediate these kids, especially early on. So there's something going on. What are some of the barriers? The other reason I use the term speech clarity is communication, that word right there. We're going to work on communication. That's the barrier because these kids are extremely good communicators. It's really rare that we have trouble understanding what a young person, either going into pre-K or K or first grade, they're so good at other ways of communicating without using speech that we don't notice that they haven't done it. Their facial expressions, their ability to use gestures and sign language, and they're smart and they're, they're sneaky and they can kind of, you know, one of the stories I tell is that I would get a lot of hugs in therapy. We'd be working on something and they'd reach over, give me a hug and be like, oh, thank you. Until it finally hit me, wait a minute, you're trying to get out of this. And so having to teach parents that, that right there <laughs> Could yeah, have been a they sentence. They manipulate, right? I that, mean, yeah. That's what kids do. <laughs> or they make a funny sound and the parents are like, okay, okay, I'll change it. And the parents know exactly what they want without them ever having to use a word. 
And so that's a big piece of what I do in the beginning. But, you know, as a parent, (laughs) I could say this to someone else that's not my child. But when I became a parent, it obviously was like, oh, I get it now. And so how do we help parents realize that speech is different than communication and it has to be practiced with extreme repetition? So I would say that those two things are the kind of the biggest early barriers to speech. So are you saying that our kids are, our Down's kids are communicating and that we need to focus on their communication style? Yeah, and making it a little bit more the way it needs to be. Can we make that funny squeak sound at school and everyone knows what I mean? Can I pull my neighbor's hair because I want them to play with me, but I also have some sensory needs and so that's just what I do. How do we early on help children understand that they can do it differently, that they can do it better. So instead Mm -hmm. of that sound, that growl one, that's that one's pretty common with kids. Usually the growl means no, right? But the other piece is knowing why they're doing it. Okay, well, they're doing this communication. I know exactly what they mean. What should they do instead? And oftentimes it can be using a sign if they're not doing that. So you kind of have to go. It's not that we don't use sign language or AAC, We use all sorts of ways to get children to communicate, but I have to constantly remember that, hey, we can use our speech too, because by the time, if we wait too long, that gets even harder and harder to start. And so I think that that might be where we kind of derail a little bit, is hanging on to some of those alternate communication modes without also incorporating the speech piece and making that just kind of an expectation. Because we have seen kids who can do that really well when it's required. And obviously it needs to be required every day, not just, you know, it had a couple sessions a week. Now we have a couple of comments here. And yes, yeah, so I was kind of going to get to some of this. So there's a big yeah. medical piece here, right? Okay. And I've, I've yeah. started to talk a lot about this in my courses because our kids, they don't just have this diagnosis. They have hearing loss. The mm-hmm. motor speech issues are big enough that it affects communication. It affects their ability to voice. It takes children with Down syndrome because they have dysarthria, which is a muscle weakness in the entire body. So it includes the speech mechanism. It takes them two to three times the energy to produce voice. So going from quietness to ah, they have to push twice as hard to get their voice to project. So now all of a sudden we understand why they push so hard physically, why they need and they like that deep pressure, why they might bump their neighbor really hard, but they didn't really mean to, or they grind their teeth, or everything's kind of exaggerated, right? And that's the dysarthria. And so then we have kind of that dysarthria, the hearing loss. We might have some feeding issues, reflux issues. We're learning, learning, learning now with a lot of the medical research that's kind of trickling down that their oxygen levels are always low. So they're always kind of half here. We almost all children with Down syndrome have sleep apnea. They haven't slept well ever. And now we start to look at these behaviors that we used to think were part of Down syndrome probably aren't. They're more a problem of sleep apnea. 
or nasal, a lot of that stuff that comes with having a smaller nasal cavity, a smaller palate. That's why the tongue is low and out and out in front. So we can get to some of those early things, not just for speech, but for sleep, for eating, for energy, for attention. And so now this snowball that we talked about before is really big. And now there's like three. And so it's really complex, but it sort of isn't. If we can go back to what you said before, if we look at each person and what they need, we can know their history. We can know maybe why they're having those difficulties in those different areas. And so I do a lot of education for parents. And even if they know that this is part of the syndrome, we sometimes have to remind them, hey, how are they sleeping? recently. Kind of a big topic now is the tethered oral tissue. Is that going on? You know, we can get our tonsils and adenoids removed, but they can grow back. And so we kind of have to keep a finger on a lot of that medical stuff. And if we can remember that that's there, we'll then be able to better problem solve what that child needs to reach that goal. So Mm -hmm. I saw some of the comments that were based on hearing. There was oral motor. Yeah. And hearing fluctuates, right? We could do a whole hour just on hearing. So a lot of parents will say, oh, yeah, his hearing's fine. He was just checked. But they may not have had great hearing. And we don't know. Because along with dysarthria comes that high pain tolerance, some people call it, or lower Mm. registration. So pain, they're used to pain. They're used to not feeling good. And so we often don't realize they've had a hearing loss or we go to the doctor and we're like, oh, we have a perforated eardrum or we have some other type of hearing loss that we just didn't think about because we assumed it was conductive. So depending on kind of where you live, we're good at catching those things, but we have to remember it fluctuates. It comes and it goes even as they, as they age because their ears are smaller. The canals are smaller and they're windier. So the fluid doesn't drain necessarily that would for you and me. So a child who has a simple allergy or tiny cold, that's going to affect their resonance, obviously, but it's going to affect their eating, their sleeping, because they're almost going to gas for air because they can't necessarily modulate airflow well. But the breathing, chewing, swallowing thing is tough or running from here to mom is tough. It's no wonder that these kids have shorter MLUs, which we used to think was a a language problem, right? A lot of the time it's an air problem. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And how do I modulate? Respiratory. Right. So yeah. respiratory and the oral motor piece. How do I modulate the exhale of air so that I can say about 12 to 15 words at a time like I'm doing right now? Our kids can't do that. They don't have the feedback in their bodies to do that. And so oftentimes they throw, mom, now go. And after every word or two words, they have to take a breath. And so that's really going to disrupt our ability to say more words at a time. And that rhythm of speech, they kind of don't have. They kind of have their own accents, if you will. And then that further impacts their intelligibility in connected speech. So it kind of, (laughs) I can see your face, the eyes get big. So that's kind of why I've hung out here is because it does seem like a lot. So how do I get this out there so that we can kind of look at it without feeling like we're drowning? Yeah, well, it's comprehensive. 
Right. I mean, you just sort of, you know, pick a body part and there's yeah. something going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, respiratory is a huge issue. Now, you talked about respiration. Is it the lungs, literally? Is it, you know, the size of the trachea and so on? Does it does that have a factor? Or is it just the muscles around it that provide support? Because we know that there's the hypotonicity with our Down syndrome population. I mean, what is that? Because that respiratory piece is hugely important, you know, for carrying all of the language, you know, and the expressions that we want to make. So where what is that? And is how do we know? Can we parse that? Or is there a professional that knows about that kind of stuff that we can investigate? Do you know what I'm saying? How do we know? Or are they just fatigued from, you know, sleep deprivation (laughs) and they just can't get the air out. (laughs) It's everything. And I've gone to a lot of these medical talks within the, the Down syndrome communities and it kind of starts in every cell as terrible as that is to say, but they have their metabolism. So they metabolize oxygen differently in every cell of the body. That's why we have obesity without heart disease, obesity without diabetes. There's all these neat things that if I can say that, neat. But T21 is now being studied by the medical profession and it's kind of trickling down and it's answering some of these questions. So most kids are born with a cardiac and pulmonary problem, right? So we have the holes in the heart when we're little. That always affects how you use air. But your body also isn't metabolizing oxygen the way ours does. So it starts that basic And depending on how health progresses in terms of getting colds, RSV, why COVID was so scary for this group, or is so scary. What's RSV? Um, The respiratory, it's the, I'm going to go blank now because I don't have it exactly, but it's a common viral infection that kids get in the the lungs when they're little, like whooping cough. Some of those that are, you know, we know they're serious, but they're not huge. But they can go through a lot of this when they're tiny. And so depending on how sick they were when they were little, a lot of our kids have higher incidences of leukemia. But their their prognosis for is extremely good compared to typical children without Down syndrome. Respiratory, thank you. Somebody just said it. Respiratory syndrome. <laughs> it's, a, it's a virus that a lot of kids get. It's a virus. Okay. But it thank can you. really be dangerous for our kids. And so what what a simple cold, a simple respiratory virus can really, it's dangerous. And so a lot of our kids are on oxygen kind of from the time they come home or from the day they're born, even if they're born full term. I mean, this is, there's a huge, you can read a lot about this stuff in terms of someone to go to. I think if you know the medical history, have they had, these are some of the things that you want to ask in that first time, right? If it's not on your forms, I have, you know, a list of things that I will ask to know the medical history. Do they have oxygen at night? You may not know this, but a lot of our kids have oxygen at night or they have CPAP just to keep those levels up. A lot of families have the little finger or the foot monitor, the toe monitor at home so that they can keep track of that. Or you're going to notice if a child has a cold, a lot of our kids are really gooey, (laughs) just kind of snotty and gooey from the beginning. And I think that the awareness has gotten better because I used to be, I used to come into a lot of homes or 
they would come to me and I'm like, whew, we can't do much right now until we get this cleared up. I can't help this child with oral motor feeding or speech because they're always stuffy. Yeah, they're they always their good. Nose. they yeah. can't breathe so they can't even do this suck swallow breathe well much less eat out of eating and feeding and learning and running in there and so it really does kind of snowball to all of those elements and then they start to get better so when i started i used to keep reading the same thing over and over again they they talk best or they start talking which isn't true but that's how it's written around 6 to 7 or 8 years of age and I remember thinking, what in the world? That is so not true. I can get a kid to talk before the age of one. What is this? Well, I think it just wasn't updated. I think that that's true because by the time they get to that age, a lot of that medical gunk is over. Teething. Yeah. <laughs> Teething lasts a really long time. And they get their teeth in funny orders. <laughs> they might get their molars first, which I always like because it kind of keeps the tongue away from the front of the mouth. But <laughs> teething can last years, five, six years of age. We're still dealing with teething and the drooling from teething and the pain and the throbbing. And so put that in there with reflux, which is extremely common and reflux is common because it's muscle weakness. Okay. So that's with the primary dentition? Yes. So then what happens with the secondary, the adult teeth? Once they're, those little babies are gone, it gets much easier. Now, they might okay. have some teeth, missing teeth, so they might have a lot of dental work. There's a lot of people looking at, you know, can we expand that palate? And we would do it when they got older, and now we're looking at doing it when they're potentially younger. And does that have an effect? I think we're done doing some of the, you know, kind of the archaic things with, you know, cutting the tongue and things. Oh, thank you. I had a couple of kids that had the... Like if here's the tongue, they took out that section and then brought the edges together. And, and it like, didn't work. Oh, really? No, it didn't. And it was just a horrible thing to do to a little person. Macroglossia is extremely rare, even in the Down syndrome population. It just appears bigger. One, they have low tone, right? That hypotonicity. And two, the, the palate is smaller. So the top of their yeah. mouth is smaller. So there's less room. So everything appears yeah. bigger. We know yeah, that now. Yeah, yeah, we also know they yeah. have that jaw jut, right? That open mouth posture, which is a breathing issue usually. Mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of jaw sliding and jaw jutting, right? Because we have a lot of tongue thrusting. So that yeah. tongue thrust, I've really never not seen it. It's still kind of common to say, oh, we can't say that's a part of Down syndrome. But it, it is because the tongue has, that's really kind of its path when the mouth itself is slower or weaker, not slower. But we're getting better with that. But we are looking now, what happens if we expand that palate? Would that help? Probably, mm -hmm. but I think that the research there is still kind of up and coming. If I could interject something here, something that I learned a while back is about craniofacial bone growth and looking at, at kids with Down syndrome. I mean, you have the, you know, the vertical growth and then you have the width. You also have the length, like from back to front. And Down syndrome individuals typically have a shorter head this way. And so that makes sense that you're going to see more of the tongue because they have less space this way as well as this way here on top. So it's like, what do you do with it? Yeah, and <laughs> then know? the jaw keeps I mean, growing, right? So this yeah, piece here can keep growing until what? I think it's 18 to 23, depending on what you read. 
yeah, for females, they tend to max out and, and stop growing, uh, I've heard, around 16, 17. And then for males, around 20, 21 is what I've always read. But yeah, and so everything continues to grow. Yeah. So we're hitting this analysis piece, and it's pretty comprehensive. Before you go on, keep your thought before we go on. Do you have any materials, any comprehensive analysis, little pieces of paper, <laughs> you, know, that, you know, files that you'd like to share with us? Do you have lists of this so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel? Do you have anything like that? I'm making them. I don't have them oh, yet, but I can put something up on my website soon to kind of give you like a checklist, like, hey, what is this, 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 and this looking there like? There you go. And then a there, little bit of why, right? Because we can know that we're supposed to check on these things, but if we don't know why, yeah. what's the point? That's right. That's right. You got to have a rationale. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I can do that. Okay. And I do have that questionnaire for parents too, where they're, they're questions simply based on people with Down syndrome. And so you can get richer answers there. And I've just kind of absorbed these over the years, but I'm just now starting to finally put them out there so that people can have something to use rather than go out and read all the references that I gave them. Yeah, because this this is huge and they really are a comprehensive analysis job. <laughs> I mean, we're not just looking here. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's comprehensive. And I think a lot of us have known many of these pieces for a long time, but it's so very interesting to listen to you because you're putting together the pieces. So is there anything else that you want to say about the analysis part so that we can slide into the therapy? Just figuring out why they're not using their voice or what happens when they do use their voice. And by voice, I mean speech. But I am looking more, we'll talk about voice in a little bit, maybe, but are they trying or learning or expected to communicate orally in addition to all the other ways that we are exploring, right? Because we have to do that analysis and then we have to explore to find what works and not only what works for the child, but what works at home. And so that's kind of another layer and then that can get us into treatment. But knowing the medical piece, remembering that speech is a part of communication and a part of language development. And then I'd even throw in when I make this, you'll see it, but how do they learn? What do we know about the way they learn so that I can choose my materials better? And I have a big piece on that for if you know how they learn, it becomes very simple to know that this will work and this will not. So how they learn, and you're talking in general terms or how they learn about communication or how do they learn like moving into their ABCs? All of it. All of it. Yes. <laughs> they okay. have an intellectual disability, right? This is the category right. we have. Um, right. And that's being challenged here and there because there's so much going on. But basically they learn differently. They have strengths and weaknesses. And I'm using the proverbial they we're not supposed to use. But when we do have a common diagnosis, some of this is true. And we just throw away the little ones that aren't. But in general, they learn best visually. So a lot of our little guys do terrible in kinder and first grade because most everything is auditory. All right, everybody, get your clean up, get your coat, line up at the door. And our kids go to the door right? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Or they're not paying attention. And now we got 504 plans and they hit their neighbor, right? But really, 
they don't learn well just with auditory information, and they have a heck of a time with executive functioning in short-term verbal memory. Mm-hmm. So all that language that was given auditorily, they just heard the last one or the first one yeah. or the word they like, right? Yeah. <laughs> or the one yeah. they know. Yeah. And so yeah. if you don't know that, you're going to assume the child can't attend and they have behavior problems. But that would be a mistake. Yeah. And that's usually what happens. Jennifer, we do have another question. You can probably see it. It says, if a kiddo is dealing with these respiratory, hearing, oxygen, etc. issues, do you delay therapy until it's better? No, you can't because yeah. it'll come back. It's a part of life for these kids. And, and oddly, they're used to it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a kid be sick on top of going through treatments for leukemia. They're troopers. They really can power through in a way that maybe you and I couldn't. But we also have to remember they're doing that. And so in a way, they're almost bilingual or trilingual in terms of what they have to manage to communicate. But don't wait. We know this from early intervention. Waiting is about the worst thing we can can do. Now, of course, if they're in the hospital, I've done therapy in hospitals through teletherapy. But what can the parent handle? Seeing you once once a week, twice a week, three times a week isn't going to do much just isn't. So we have to train who they're with. If you can train who they're with, give them nuggets, give them very clear things to work on that are fairly simple, but the child needs to learn. Yes, you you can, but you may not do what you would do with a child who was healthy at the same age with the same diagnosis. So yes, we can still continue to work with them. Okay. All right. Good. Well, let's move into therapy and let's I know that, that in our title, we have the word clarity. So should we sort of just zero in on that? Where would you like to start with your therapy piece? So I said before that oftentimes our kids have more than one speech diagnosis. We might be having articulation, phonology, motor speech. We oftentimes get questions, okay, well, which one? Do I work on this sound? Mom says he doesn't say this sound. I'm going to work on this sound. I'm going to say this and it's not liked oftentimes. Don't work on sounds. When you listen to this child talk, it's not the sounds. It's never, well, it's not never. It is a little bit in the beginning, but it's not. It's the way it's all put together. And so obviously we work on sounds. You can't not, but there's some really fun research coming out on vowels (laughs) with this group. And one of the biggest treatments is using melodic intonation right? Stretching our vowels out, right? We know that with motor speech, we have vowel problems. Oftentimes, it's not the sound. So if you work on TH or you work on F, I have a bunch of funny stories. It generalizes weird and it stresses everyone out because remember, they can't remember those little things at the time that they're talking. And so one of the things I always say is, how do we know we're getting better then? How do I know what to work on, and then show that we've improved. What can the listener attend to? Are they attending to how the child said what they did say, or are they attending to what the child said? If we're attending to how the child said it, we need to sit there, record your sessions, and watch it back and watch it back, watch it back. Try to figure out what's going on there. And it sounds boring, and it is, but I can't tell you how many aha moments I've had where I'm listening, and I'm like, oh, gosh, It's resonance. 
the whole thing is resonance. Their jaws all over the place. I mean, simply give yourself a jaw jet and say your name, Jennifer Gray. That's okay, okay. maybe in one word or two words, right? But now try to say a sentence with your jaw forward, and maybe have an odd s and an odd r and an, r, an odd th, right? So. We kind of have to listen to what's going on in the signal. And we obviously, you know, we'll separate things by syllables and by words. But how close can we get without working on sounds to having better intelligibility? And that's kind of where we want to start. So oftentimes, we'll have little ones that can say all the words on the GFTA with a couple errors, right? And yet, still don't have a clue what they're telling you outside of one word. And sometimes even one word is hard. So we got to look at those super segmental stuff. So here's where we get into voice, resonance, fluency, rate, pitch, loudness. They have really odd prosody. They don't time syllables right. <laughs> so interesting. Yes. And we're, so our barriers between syllables, our barriers between clusters, it's all goofy. And mm-hmm. so they may say something with the accent in the wrong spot and you're not going to have any, any idea. The only example I can think of really quick is a child who had family in Maryland. And I, it took me weeks to figure out what that word was because she said it is Merlin. And I'm thinking of the wizard the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's who I think of, yeah. And then mom finally told me Maryland. Well, if you've ever been to Maryland, they don't really say Maryland, right? We do, but it's different there. They kind of leave some of those consonants out. And so that tiny little shift in either de-voicing or not stopping or stopping, plus that kind of odd prosody or rhythm. That's often more times what's going on. So we kind of have to pace them. If you change your voice purposefully by yelling, talking louder, whispering, singing, you cannot make weird mistakes. Intelligibility gets better because all of a sudden we're slowing down. You can't tell a kid to slow down. What does that mean? We have to slow down and we have to sort of overemphasize what we say so it works. So one of the biggest things that we use in fluency is that melodic intonation. Well, if I sing it just a little bit, hi, my name is Jennifer. Why do we, (laughs) it's always a bad example, but why do we talk to babies like that no matter where we're from? Because they pay attention. They like it. They attend. Our children with Down syndrome love music. Every parent on the planet is going to tell you that they love music. It's there's something in that kind of right side that makes them love that more than anything. Well, this works because it's music. And so they're almost immediately willing to kind of perk up and listen. But if I talk like that, I can't make all those errors I was making before. And they're really good at kind of copying you when you're not telling them to. So I've had parents tell me, I'm like, I don't really talk like that all day. And they were like, really? (laughs) That's just, that's how we talk in therapy because it works. And so simply kind of knowing what they're good at, which is music, why the speech signal is wonky. Okay, it's a bunch of stuff. What would we use in a different area that might work? 
So melodic intonation is kind of a way to start. When we were in apraxia, it was coming through, we were, you know, separating out all the, the syllables and it worked, right? But it didn't work when we had to put them all back together because everything was chunked with the same stress. And so it really kind of hurt us down the line because stress and prosody, they're kind of messy in Down syndrome and hearing loss being one of the main reasons for that. But also just how quickly or slowly they talk and use their voice. And without a ton of practice, this can't be mastered. And so that practice piece, we kind of go back to that idea of drill versus meaning and drill versus meaning, but there's, there's ways to do both, but we need a lot of repetition of that same thing. This is also what motor speech gave us, right? All of a sudden we knew that saying it three times helped. And so now we say it three times and we kind of move on to the next thing we're going to say three times. And then we can kind of master that and that feeling of speech. They don't know what it feels like. They don't know what their vowel voice sounds like. And so that feedback loop that's so inhibited, the only way we can get that better is they need to talk more. How do we use speech more when they're not really good at it? We go to the second one. So if we're looking at the voice and the suprasegmentals, because our kids are visual learners, they can learn to read very, very young. They like pictures, so we can use PECs and AAC systems. But because I'm trying to stay on that speech side, reading works really well for me. And now we know that we can get very young children to read that have Down syndrome, assuming, you know, we have all the right pieces. But reading allows, it's basically a pacing board. It's a way to talk without having to retrieve information. So I can read, my name is Jennifer, and I can say it. My name is Jennifer. Easier than trying to remember the two words that come before my name. Wait, was it three words that come before my name? How am I supposed to say this? And so I just say my name, right? And then we go back and no, 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 that's not what you're supposed to do. So if we have the idea of a pacing word, which comes from Libby Kuman, so your three circles, let's say, so telephone, you might have three circles for telephone or I want more. Don't use that. Don't get mad at me for this one. But um, (laughs) it just popped my head for speed. But if I have three circles, I know I want more. I'm more likely to say I want more if I can see the circles. But if I can read, now imagine. I don't need circles. I just need words. There you go. And how is that going to help me down the line? Immensely at school, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have ways that we can teach them to talk, knowing that they have memory issues. And that they're not good at listening, right? So knowing some of those things and then going after it. Really, if you come out of here and just know they have medical stuff you got to be aware of, trying to change how the voice is actually produced and how voice is produced. And then knowing that, hey, they're visual. So really, I should be using something that's visual, but also something that's interesting to them. So your worksheets, not very good, (laughs) unless they're super simple. I think there's a lot of people that are thinking that worksheets may not be the way to go for a lot of kids. So as far as worksheets, you're talking about paper pencil kind of stuff. Yeah, the stuff right? that you would get from Super Duper that you've copied for the last 20 years of your okay. life at, the, at yeah. the school. Yeah. But remember, visual stuff is good. So I was doing teletherapy before COVID. And so mostly just to get to people who couldn't get to specialists. But 
what we have learned through teletherapy and the materials that have come out now, what we can do over a screen is amazing. And so another thing that I'll do with my little ones, heck, I do it with all of them. But one of the first sessions I ever have will be pictures that I have the parents send me of their family. That child is going to talk and tell me about who's in those pictures before those silly pictures I picked off the internet from my super duper cards or whatever. They might like those, but I promise you, you're going to build interest and you're going to see language explode that you haven't seen before. And so we use real pictures and we talk about them and we show them pictures of them. And any child loves this but particularly our kids with Down syndrome. And so there's little tricks there that we can use where we're just kind of replacing some of the things that we were using with something that we might know is more appealing where we can get what we need quicker. Because we often don't, you don't most people don't have the time I do <laughs> to look at this because I only see Down syndrome. So you don't have to do a ton more to work these in and they work for everyone, right? That's kind of what we learned with childhood apraxia of speech is, hey, that works for my Arctic kids too. So it kind of bleeds over and it's not quite as scary. Okay. So you have picture of an entire family, maybe separate one of mom, dad, brother, sister, and the dog. And what do you do with those? I steal from every other program I can find for children with Down syndrome or not with Down syndrome. So one of the first ones I ever saw were some of the Lakeshore learning materials with the books they have with your carrier phrases. So the carrier phrase starts the same and the picture changes, right? The noun changes. I see a dog. I see a tree. So we know we learn the I see a as a music, right? But now it's my mom and my dad and me and my dog and my cup and my chair where I eat. And we, I'll usually drink, it's really a Shutterfly book. <laughs> Think a Shutterfly book, but if you're doing teletherapy, you can use PowerPoint. But having a carrier phrase was something that they're more interested in. So now I can build vocabulary. I can target sounds if I need to, but I'm also targeting modulating airflow so that I can work on melodic intonation. So now I'm working on from day one, almost a four or five word sentence. And I don't really care how well they say it. But if they're trying and they're liking it, it's amazing. And I can plug some other reading courses that do this brilliantly too. The one I'm using more recently is called So Happy to Learn. And the person who has created it was a special education teacher. I think, I hope I get that right. She's not an SLP, but she was tasked with helping children with Down syndrome learn to read. And so she, a lot of what I was already doing she does too. And so it was kind of fun. And so I'll take some of her stuff and build it into my ICA books, right? And just that repetition of doing it over and over again, that musicness of it, she adds in like a wand or a pencil so we can point to each word as we go. And this is extremely powerful for these kids. And it turns out that I can do all of this, all of my goals within a book. I heard the name. She calls herself Mrs. Brown. I just forgot her first name. That's the author of So Happy to Learn? Yes. I I think Mrs. Brown. But her program, So Happy to Learn. Well, we can Google that. But a lot of the reading programs are kind of like this. And so my personal book, you'll see it in the research, is called a personal book or an autobiographical book. 
So first session is I might have three or four pictures from mom. I'll throw that in there. I'll meet the child and I'll figure out how complicated I need to make those slides. And I can immediately get a language sample almost because they're into it. And then I'll, then I do certain things in therapy, like leave the book out. I can't tell you how many times parents will come back to me and be like, oh my gosh, she sat down in the corner for an hour and read the book to herself over and over again. Grandma came yeah. over and she took the book to grandma because all of a sudden she was empowered. She had a way to communicate and it didn't involve a, a computer grandma had to learn, right? It was It's a simple thing. And it, actually the first one I ever saw <laughs> was a potty training book a mom showed me. He brought me the book and I was like, what is this? made out of construction paper. Pipe cleaners were the bindings. She had laminated it. And it was every step from I'm playing with my toys to I'm washing my hands from an OT. Of course, they always have the best stuff. And it had a sentence on each page of what he was doing on each page. And he potty trained this way. And he was a late potty trainer. It was a struggle. And so I took that. It was so powerful. I took that, researched it, and sure enough, it's a thing, right? And so kind of from there, that's what spurred. I was like, everything came together right there from a field that wasn't, I wasn't really looking at as, as much as I should. And then same with some of the learning stuff that you and I go through to, you know, to kind of help ourselves be better day to day. A lot of that stuff is good too, that we forget that our kids are people. <laughs> and this is hard. How can we make it less hard? How can we make it that they want to do it and then have, you know, and understand and it's funny, you think about, well, what about the older kids? Sometimes I'm using a lot of the same things, um, depending on what they've had prior to seeing me. And it kind of changes as we age too. So a lot of what you're going to learn with the littles, you can still use with your older kids, kind of, and you just change it based on what they need, either what they need at home, what they need in the community, what they need at school. Yeah, just adapt it. And are they able to communicate what they know? Because this is the Mm -hmm. piece that people don't understand. They assume they don't know. And I can't tell you how many times parents are just like, oh, you know, the teacher came to me and said she doesn't know her colors. And I'm like, what? She does know her colors. But it was done in such a way that the child froze or hated it, right? But if you bring out your trains, he can tell you the color of every train and the number, maybe even the name. That was just an example that kind of came to me from a kid in my yeah. head. But they do know. We just don't always know how to access it. And so this is why your parents always say, he's so smart. I wish people knew he was so smart. Well, they don't know because we don't know how to access it quite as quickly as we want it. And our kids are funny, right? They're funny. And so when you hear that from a parent, it's very tempting to kind of roll your eyes and go, oh. but it's usually true. And we just have to explore it. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, give me one more quickie tip, trick, technique. Practice. This is a word that I'm really kind of attacking right now because I think I haven't made it clear enough that we have to practice speech a lot. Read out loud. Answer questions out loud. Practice out loud. Figure out what it is that's making that signal. Terry Brown. Thank you. I just saw it. Terry Brown. Thank you. Terry, I knew it was a simple... Practice. Find a way to practice where you're not going to get a lot of pushback. It's also easy to incorporate in your sessions at school, at home, etc. That's not very nice, but there's a bunch of stuff I'm, I'm putting out on the internet. I'm doing more courses. And so I go into a lot of these in more depth. 
Okay. I didn't catch the why it wasn't very nice. I'm sorry. What wasn't nice? It all sounded pretty good to me. To just say practice is kind of confusing. Oh, but no. And you're talking about repetitive practice. You're not talking about, oh, let's just read the book once and move on. No. You're talking about repetitive practice, correct? Yes. And and Terry Brown, if you look up Terry Brown, her thing is teach, don't test. Try not asking a child a question tomorrow for five minutes. It's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that question thing is a whole thing that I have. It's like, why are we doing that? Do kids think that we're quizzing them? You know, which is not very nice, but, you know, I, at any rate. But and, and and questions are saying, hard yeah, for this population. Extremely yeah. hard because yeah. their, their executive functioning stinks. Yeah. And so yeah. they don't answer the question, not because they don't know the answer, because they weren't sure what to attend to to answer and how long was it from the question to the answer? And so all these yeah. little tiny things in there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, lots of little detailed issues happening there that we need to be aware of, you know, be aware of. And I, and I don't know if we're going to remediate all of that, but you're talking about getting in and I'm going to say teach to their strengths. And then figure and- out how to get in there to make it meaningful to them. And you have to work on answering questions. So I think I haven't made that clear either. It's not that you don't ask questions. Our kids have to, that's the world. But how do we teach them to answer questions first and then start to quiz them instead of testing them first? We don't want to test them first. Let's give them the answer first, then see if they can answer the question. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, I'm I'm thinking that's going to be podcast number two. (laughs) I know everybody is always (laughs) like, I don't, we just scratched the surface here. Yeah. No, I'm totally serious. I need to have you back, you know, relatively soon because this is very interesting and you have a lot of strategies and techniques and so on that I'm sure that we would all just love to hear and to use. So uh, I thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for sharing your amazing and practical insights with us. You are like super knowledgeable. And thank you for getting in there and learning all this and researching it and working with your kids and then sorting it all out. Because it is, it's like, it really is. It's, there's just lots of needles in there in this haystack. Yes. And this kind of prompts me to start to put it together so that other people can learn. Please do. Yeah, please do. It's time. It's time. Just do it. Okay. All right. Call me. Okay. Call me. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you not only learn about practical information, you earn CEUs. And I greatly appreciate your positive comments and your reviews and your support. And as you may know, the SpeechLink meets every other Thursday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And the next time that we meet is August 12. Make a note. Same time. And I've got there Sherry Gross, who is a an experienced SLP, and she's going to share her knowledge and expertise on selective mutism, real world info and answers for SLPs. Ah, boy, I've had a couple of selective mute kids and didn't know what to do with them. So that's going to be really great, just like tonight. So as you know, when we wrap up, just log into your speechtherapypd.com account take the quiz, do the evaluation, and print out your certificate. 
And in a few days, the audio version of this episode will also will be available for free on all of the popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Spotify and Podbean and all of those. And do know that you are greatly, greatly appreciated. And thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. See you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time. Thank you.